Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. All right, let's try to read off this resume. Political scientist, best-selling author, speaker, prolific tweeter, global research professor at NYU, foreign affairs columnist at Time Magazine, Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group. Did you also play for the Baltimore Colts during the strike season? Wow, I I remember the Baltimore Colts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a little small for that. (laughs) And were you on the fourth season of The Wire? Uh, all that stuff makes me tired even when you read that, frankly. Um, I, it's, uh, it's juggling. Slacker. Nevertheless, we'll have him on for the hour. Stay with us. Full disclosure. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by Elwood Thompson's, aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through a strong commitment to local and organic food. Elwood Thompson's, located in Richmond's Carytown. We're joined in New York by Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group, one of the most cited firms in terms of foreign policy risk and market risk. Ian, thank you so much for making the time to join us. Uh, my pleasure, Parzer. I do want to get a sense. Uh, in your bio, it says that you started Eurasia Group, was it circa 98, with $25,000? Can you tell us what was involved there, what your thinking was back then, now that almost 18 years have passed? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't think I needed $25,000. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, what was clear to me is that political scientists did not have a path uh, to become private sector people. Uh, the private sector just didn't hire them. And I met with a succession of corporate types and bankers in New York, um, all of whom seemed to be very interested in having conversations with me, but none of whom actually said they had jobs for me. Um, and so finally, after about a year of this, I asked one of them, and you'd think I would remember. It's kind of apocryphal. I don't remember which one it was. And I said, you know, you keep like being willing to spend all this time with me, but but you say you don't have a job. If I just hung out a shingle, would would you become a client? And And he immediately said, well, of course. And I thought to myself, oh, well, I guess that I've been doing the wrong thing. Uh, and I went and, and talked to about 10 or 15 people over the course of the next couple of weeks. And before I knew it, I had about 10 or 15 clients. I just didn't know what my company was going to be. Uh, that was That's kind of how it started. It's kind of bizarre. So how did you bootstrap it with with founder's equity, with savings? I mean, what did you have to do? Go hire people? Is it is it taking consulting commitments first and then hiring people kind of on the promise of equity? I know that's a little inside baseball, but what's involved there? Uh, well, it, it certainly was not writing a business plan and raising a bunch of money. There's been no outside investment in this company for 18 years. Um, uh, and, and my view was, I mean, I remember I went to a, it's kind of funny. I went to this, this group of entrepreneurs down in Silicon Alley when I started the company and I said, oh, I don't, you want to meet some other people that are starting up firms and, uh, just to see like what they do, because I'm a political scientist. I don't know anything about business. Um, and, uh, and they were, one of them asked me what my burn rate was and I didn't, I'd never heard of a burn rate. And apparently that, well, that's what happens when you raise a bunch of money and you find out like how many months you have left before you have to raise more money. I'm like, Oh, I don't, I don't have one of those. And they were, they were very confused. And I just, for, for me, the idea of starting a business and raising money when you don't have any money coming in seemed, that seemed a little perverse. I thought, well, let me make the money first. And then as I make it, I'll hire more people. And that's precisely what I did. So how did it work initially? You, you just, you, 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 you didn't have like a sell side research model with a lot of Wall Street firms or places with a significant willingness to pay? Were they just keeping you on consulting retainer? I mean, I see a lot of times, like a Goldman Sachs used to have various vice chairman titles for uh, a person with a sinecure who could come out and hold forth on international topics or do Davos or the occasional think tank. But yours is actually getting down to brass tacks. You're talking about real risk and actionability. 
Yeah, I mean, when it was just me, it was obviously harder. And the reason the firm is called Eurasia Group is because that was actually the part of the world that I really knew personally. I speak Russian. I've lived over there for a, a few years, um, and uh, and and I was basically advising uh, and consulting a number of firms um, specifically on political risk, how politics was affecting markets in ways that they really didn't appreciate uh, that would matter to their businesses, and that there were some corporations and there were some banks that were doing that um, that were that became clients um, and. Uh, and then as I as as the firm grew, as I had the enough clients to hire people, first we expanded to cover um, all the emerging markets in the world. Then we include developed markets. Then we started growing sectoral uh, expertise and capacity. Then we brought in people that actually knew what a consulting business was all about, both in terms of management and business and part, uh, business relationships. And you know, now 18 years in, we've got 150 full timers and 500 locals and about wow. 500 clients. And it's a real company now. It's kind of exciting. And how many offices across the planet? Uh, we're in New York, Washington, London, Tokyo, and Sao Paulo, and we're going to open a couple more in the next 12 months. Coming soon to Tehran near you, I, I hear that. No, I promise you that will not happen anytime soon. <laughs> uh, let's shift gears. Um, I want to I wanna just ask you point blank, whatever happened to the UN? I mean, I grew up uh, learning about the importance of multilateralism. How many times do we have to learn this lesson, be it in, in the 1970s in Cambodia and Vietnam and some of the uh, subsequent atrocities that happened in sub-Saharan Africa? in uh, 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 Srebrenica, and now you see uh, a lot of these things happening again, for example, in Syria with the spread of ISIS and the use of, of uh, maybe uh, barrel bombs and chemical weapons, and the, United, the UN kind of being out there with, with uh, as a kind of a toothless, platitudinous entity on 42nd Street. So, I mean, it's the 70th anniversary, and um, there's no question that a lot of people are asking uh, precisely the question that you just just uh, put, posed to me. But let me push back for a second before I before I give you the answer you want, um, which is that you know there's almost no organization in the world, maybe no organization in the world that's done more over the course of the past decades to help reduce global poverty, um, to reduce childhood mortality. Uh, you look at an organization like UNICEF and the extraordinary efforts that they've made globally. It doesn't make headlines because it's a good story. It's a positive story. But my God, it matters. I mean, it's not just, uh, you know, sort of the invisible hand of the market and globalization that suddenly brings all these people out of poverty. A lot of these countries are completely off the grid. They haven't been globalized yet. And yet you've actually managed to make a difference and start bringing these people in, urbanizing them, improving education. The UN's done magnificent work hmm. in making that happen. And I'm delighted that the United States um, is the largest funder uh, of many of those projects um, because it's really it really aligns with the values that we founded this country on. Um, but but there's no question. Uh, and, and by the way, and even on stuff like that, I mean, the World Health Organization had its budgets gutted after the 2008 financial crisis. As a consequence, they were really ineffective at fighting Ebola. So I mean, you even on stuff like this, it doesn't always work. But um, but but the the issue that you raised, which is my God, the Middle East is a disaster, and my God, these refugee crisis is only getting larger and larger, more numbers than we've seen of refugees in the world since World War II, hmm. and yet we have a United Nations that ostensibly deals with this Ban Ki-moon as one of the least effectual uh, bureaucratic leaders that the world has ever seen, and the bar is low for that. Um, why? And, and the answer to that is that um, the geopolitical structure of the world is breaking down. Um, the United States is losing global influence, even though we remain the world's only superpower. And the United Nations structure at the top, the Security Council structure, reflects that. 
um, and, and and therefore the Security Council is a is 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 a near useless organization at this point, mm. and the Secretary General is utterly ineffective at providing leadership, and and that is on vivid display um, as we look at these conflicts that are not getting better around the world. And you see bizarre headlines such as Vladimir Putin, who is no you know great torchbearer for the unbridled spread of democracy, coming out saying that Russia wants coordination against ISIS, filling that vacuum as a player like Putin, who had his adventures in uh, Crimea and the Ukraine, um, is is not just an upstanding citizen of that region, as you know up uh, very well, but kind of coming in with the Iranians and saying that uh, we need to get together and make this this kind of firewall of, of players to prop up uh, a regime that many look at as being nefarious is a big part of the problem. Well, I mean, Putin... Uh, is a big part of the problem. Uh, the fact that he individually is uh, trying to undermine um, U.S. influence uh, in the world um, and wants to hasten the move towards a multipolar system where Russia is an important pole, uh, that's a serious problem. When Putin says he wants to bring together a coalition to fight ISIS, uh, please, uh, I mean, his support for Assad, we know how much Assad has not been fighting ISIS directly over the course of the last four years. Well, why is Assad so important to him? The Iranians, I understand, because he is sympathetic to the Shiite cause and the Shiite firewall. But what is it? Is it is it about the navigation of the ports or having uh, Syria there as a hard ally of Russia geostrategically? I think it's two things. Uh, one, it is the ability to really undermine uh, a, 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 an, an ineffective uh, American policy um, and uh, and get the attention away um, from Russia, Ukraine. It's going to do a lot to align the Russians with the Europeans um, and get those sanctions off. I think that's important. Getting Ukraine off the headlines is useful from the Russian perspective. They've accomplished most of what they wanted to accomplish in Ukraine, so now they want to they want to get themselves in a better geopolitical position. And the second is that the Syrian Assad regime has been probably the most important and useful client state for the Russians in the region, specifically in terms of military bases, but also in terms of collecting and sharing intelligence. And the Russians have absolutely no intention of allowing them to go down. Um, and now that the Iran deal is has been concluded, the Russians can actually do that in coordination with the Iranians and an Iranian-supported Iraqi regime, hence the sudden announcement of an intelligence sharing agreement uh, between the Iraqis, the Russians, uh, the Iranians, and the Syrians just yesterday, much to the chagrin and complete surprise of the United States, which was caught flat-footed by that announcement. Hmm. Um, really quite something. I would argue that this is Putin's most victorious day on the international stage that we have seen since he was reelected as president. That is quite something for being the recipient of a country that the Americans have consistently said we're going to isolate unless they change their behavior. Would this all have happened if we didn't go into Iraq in 2003? Oh, I mean, I think that if you look back at the last 25 years, uh, the single greatest damage that's been done to the Americans geostrategically was the enormous overreaction to 9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the, 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 both the direct um, economic and military costs, the human, the sheer human costs, both for the Americans and of course for other countries around the world, most notably those two countries themselves, uh, the damage that that has, has done uh, is, is, is really so much greater than that of any other country that has been trying to hurt the U.S. 
Um, this is, you know, we basically, this is what happens. We ignore problems and then we overreact. We ignore problems and we overreact, right? We weren't paying attention to ISIS. And then, you know, uh, we fought two Americans get, uh, get, uh, their, their heads chopped off and, and suddenly our hair's on fire. Uh, you know, we pay no attention to Ebola whatsoever. And then one person shows up in Nebraska, one American with Ebola. And then, oh my God, we got to deal with Ebola. And we spend an enormous amount of money, most of it in the U S which is completely ineffective. So, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. This is the way we deal with this stuff. Um, but there is no question that, uh, we hastened uh, the emergence of this this G zero world, as I call it, not mm. a G seven or G twenty, but a G zero, um, with with the disastrous interventions in Iraq, in particular. Let me try to understand this better. I wonder, and you're not clairvoyant, but in their heart of hearts, if a Colin Powell or a, you know Don Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and all that wish that they could have kept Saddam Hussein there. They didn't finish the job the first time around um, in 1991, whatever it was. I think at the at the behest of uh, a Cheney and a Powell who told them that there would be this horrific vacuum after the fact. You'd have the Kurds going up against the Shiites and the Sunnis. We ended up empowering Iran. The conventional wisdom was that if you knocked out um, the Taliban, if you knocked out um, uh, Baghdad, that I Iran would kind of pop in the middle of it. But if anything, it was strengthened as evidenced by uh, Iran's clout in the big nuclear agreement. Uh, you know, unpack that for me. I, I certainly don't believe that um, the, those in the Bush administration that were pursuing this policy um, would would say we wish Hussein was still there. Um, I think what they would say um, is that they that there were a lot of mistakes made by the Americans after Hussein was removed, certainly in terms of um, undermining all of the institutions that existed around Hussein. Um, absent which you do have a true vacuum. They would also say that the Americans gave up the plot too quickly and pulled out much faster than we probably should have, given that those mistakes were made, because that created a vacuum for now the emergence of the most powerful terrorist organization that the world has ever seen. Um, so I think that's what they would say. I, I agree with you that Iran has been emboldened as a consequence of this, not only in, in their own power as a country, but also in their influence in the region, certainly most notably with the, reg with the regime in Baghdad. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I actually, I am a supporter of the Iranian deal and I am in large part because I think that the way that you ultimately engage one of the most diverse economies in the region with a lot of human capital, um, is you invest in them. And that makes it much more likely that over five, 10 years, this theocratic regime either erodes or actively falls apart. Continuing to isolate them was only strengthening the hardest line forces within Iran. One of the reasons it was so hard to get this deal done is because there are many of the conservatives in Iran understand that very well, but they also understood they need cash to keep the regime going. And so they, they, they created, uh, they ended up, they ended up, uh, the devil, uh, they didn't know. Um, and, uh, and we'll see where that gets them. But ultimately, I think that's one of the few bright lights at this point um, in, the, in the region. I do accept having said that, that one of the consequences of prioritizing Iran and the Iran deal as the single thing that matters most to the Obama administration in the Middle East, and then number two, the fight of ISIS, does mean that the Russians uh, have snookered you in Syria because you can't get rid of Assad if your first two priorities are Iran deal and ISIS. Just not happening. You know, one of the many hats you wear, as I as I mentioned at the top of the show, is uh, you are a columnist for Time Magazine, foreign affairs columnist, and you are prolific there. I love reading your bylines. Thank you. Uh, one sobering uh, story you posted last week, these five facts explain Bashar Assad's hold in Syria. 
um, you wrote that the devil you know. It's not just Russian or Iranian backing that ensures Assad will remain in power. It's the fact that Assad is the lesser of two evils and the West can't afford any more power vacuums in the Middle East. In geopolitics as in life, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. ISIS now controls more than 50% of Syrian territory. It is without a doubt the best funded and best equipped terrorist organization the world has ever seen. You know, I try to square that and and the kind of the Kissingerian real politic aspects of this, that the world is not perfect. You know, it's like Rumsfeld said, you go to war with the army you have. Um, with the horrific images that were repeated on on 60 Minutes several weeks ago, this is a person who we thought was a rational player, Bashar Assad. Like you, he's appeared on the Charlie Rose show. He's very Western. He's very elegant. He has he has taste for fine dining. Yes, self-preservation is, is of his foremost interest. But whatever happened there, he, he dropped chemical weapons on his own people. His his soldiers have shot specifically at pregnant women. Um, you're dealing with very plausibly a war criminal here. And are we still at the point in our lack of leverage, in our evolution, when you talk about the United States being diminished, that we and the UN and the other quote-unquote good guys uh, in the Western Hemisphere kind of have to sit on the sidelines and say that this is the best we can do? I think Bashar Assad is a monster. And, um, I mean, chemical weapons are the least of the crimes that he's revisited, uh, has visited on his people over the course of the past four years. The fact that more than 50% of that population is displaced, the fact that we've seen 4.2, 4.3 million refugees come out of this crisis, and we're not, we're not even, you know, seeing the beginning of the end, right? I mean, it's, there'll be at least another million probably over the next 12 months. So we're, we're continuing that pace. I would love to see the back of this guy. Um, and yet there was absolutely no political support to take steps that were going to get him out and that were going to lead to anything like a governable Syria. I mean, I'm not just talking about the Obama administration, which happens to be, you know, the people in power right now. But when I talk to those uh, that are running against uh, the, the Democrats right now for the 2016 race and I ask them what they would do aside from talk really tough, I don't get anything that leads me to believe that there was a plausible option for the United States to actually remove Assad and to uh, rebuild a country in Syria. And so therefore, um, you know, you, you are left confronting reality. Um, why did he vacillate? Why did anywhere. why did Obama vacillate towards, you know, in the autumn of 2013 when we saw those horrific images? Why did he prevaricate? Why did after drawing a red line, did he say, all right, uh, we're going to uh, hand it over to Congress for a consultation, but we'll get back to you. And after but, that, I get yeah, the impression yeah. that that really took a lot of the United States uh, bully pulpit off the table. I mean, maybe it's a it's a facile read, but then Russia felt emboldened to do uh, nefarious things in 2014. And uh, Assad certainly said that these guys aren't so so scary after all. It's not a facile read. It's just that you're talking about optics and communication as opposed to policy. And uh, I mean, the actual policy that Obama has consistently put forward in Syria is we don't want to get involved in this because we don't see any options that would make it better. I mean, doing things just for the sake of doing them may make you feel good, but if it's not actually helping the Syrians, it's not getting anywhere, right? I think we can all agree to that. And yet we as Americans frequently say things to make ourselves feel better without helping anyone at all. I mean, if you were the Ukrainian president, you could be actually forgiven 
for believing that if you fought harder against the Russians, the Americans were going to help you. We sent the head of the CIA, you know, we sent the vice president, the secretary of defense, all visiting him. We invited him to NATO summits. We had a Twitter campaign for him. Right. And, and yet, you know, we did nothing. We, we absolutely did not help the Ukrainians. We did not make a difference. I mean, at, at, at some degree, the death of 7,000 Ukrainians in this fight is actually on our shoulders. And I think we, we should accept that. And of course, no one will. Um, and I think with Syria, the point is that, you know, you say that Obama prevaricated and he set red lines and then we backed down and then he did. And it was horribly damaging for America's image and relations around the world. But when you talk about what it was that Obama was saying he was going to do, we were talking about 48 to 72 hours of bombing of military installations. We were going to tell the Syrians in advance we weren't that we wanted. We wanted to make sure that we weren't killing a bunch of Syrians. That there weren't going to be civilians that were killed. We weren't prepared to put troops on the ground. We didn't have rebels we could work with. We didn't want to send a lot of arms because it would get in the hands of Al Nusra or an ISIS. And we've now seen that that's happened. I mean, none of the options were any good. So you're right that once Obama said it's a red line, and once Kerry said we're going to attack these guys. Even if we don't get the Brits to support us, even if we don't have support in Congress, we probably should have done it. But if, if we can't kid ourselves to believe that having done that would have led to any remotely different situation on the ground for the Syrians, what it would have done is bought the Americans more credibility with the Russians and with other actors in the region. And that is important. Don't get me wrong. But also probably hasten the demise of the Assad regime. And, and the players that were filling the vacuum were not these imagined, you know, Syrian moderates, these secular—I mean, it was, it's kind of laughable how many actual people that we've, we've, we've trained or, or uh, uh, factions, you know, there was, I don't know, the Free Syrian Army. There were a handful of people that would show up. They were, they were kind of lackluster. They were sort of into it. They were not into it. There isn't—you know, Assad and, and the situation has kind of uh, presented itself that Assad can say to the world, hey, look, it's, it's uh, me— or an amorphous evil that's kind of shape-shifting and is going to entire devour the entire Middle East. And I just wonder how the United States and its its allies, even with its its paucity of, of credibility over the last five years, could have prevented itself from being boxed in as such. Yeah. No, no. I mean, again, I think there are lots of ways to prevent yourself from being boxed in by the Russians, some of which has to do with earlier policy on Ukraine, which was really a failed policy, and some of which would have been to not set red lines or if you set them, uphold them in some minimum symbolic way so that you don't give such a an, an, layup for the Russians to actually come in as they have. Um, but I, I don't think um, that uh, when we're talking about the options the Americans had, yeah, they've trained, what was it, four or five rebels at this point have been trained. That's kind of an astonishing story. Putin was laughing about that uh, in his interview with Charlie Rose on 60 Minutes this weekend. Um, you don't want to be in that position. And this was precisely why there was so much resistance in the administration to actually funding these rebels. No, no one believed. I mean, Hillary Clinton went out. She tried to put together an alternative government. It turned out they were they were fighting all, internally all the time and they had no links with people on the ground. You had all sorts of people trying to figure out the background of who were the rebels that we could actually train. And no one was convinced that that, you know, what John McCain was saying, which is there are thousands and we can do this. No one that actually was on the ground was convinced that this was going to work. And so as a consequence, the, the least you can say is that the Americans have done surprisingly little um, that has actively made this worse. It's mostly gotten worse organically on the ground. Hmm. 
Now, take this to uh, the situation in Iran and Iran's uh, credibility, its cloud. Obviously, oil, since the time you started your your uh, Eurasia group, oil has climbed from $9 a barrel, went to as high as $145 a barrel. That really puffed up the chests of, of uh, Tehran and Moscow and Caracas. It's fallen back down a bit now, but Iran gets this potentially huge infusion of frozen capital uh, by dint of the nuclear agreement. Um can you illustrate for us to what extent uh, the geopolitical situation? I mean, aside from them enriching uranium, uh, the, the 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 disarray in Syria, the disarray in Iraq has kind of made us has forced us to put a player in there that would, uh, like I I think, just present a, a firewall against the amorphous evil that is ISIS. As much as we don't like them or trust them, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. The Iranians are certainly very interested in fighting ISIS. They're also very interested in fighting all of the Sunni regimes in the region, some of which we're quite close to, some of which we're getting less close to. I don't believe that $140 oil was puffing the chest of the Iranians very much because, of course, they were under a very tough sanctions regime at the time. Even with high oil prices, inflation was spiraling out of control in Iran. Their currency was getting seriously devalued. Unemployment was high. I mean, this is why we we did actually build an international coalition, both under Bush and under Obama, We built a strong group, both of allies and including the Russians and the Chinese, that effectively to prevent the Iranians from developing nuclear weapons, um, pushed them to the brink economically, where it started to create instability in the country. And that was that's a huge success, frankly, one of the very few we can point to of coalition building over the course of the past. So why why then the impression that we on balance didn't have the leverage going into these negotiations, that they were the ones with the stronger hands? Because the counterfactual was, okay, we don't sign a deal here. They they go on enriching anyway. It's kind of, you know, they teach you in business school, best alternative to negotiated agreement. Well, the Iranians seem to have the upper hand, even though their economy was being drilled, even though oil prices were tanking, even though the Saudis had no love for them. Israel was putting the full force of APAC against this deal. That's a great question. And and the fact is that um, although it's clear that the deal was a win for the U.S. as structured um, and that this deal is better than no deal, um, I, I do think it'll be considered one of the big wins for the Obama administration as you look back at the presidency after he's gone. But the fact is that at the end of the negotiations, the Americans lost some steam, in part because Kerry was exhausted and he just wanted to get it done. The Iranians recognized that. And in part because the members of the coalition who were really strong in pushing for sanctions and a deal started to fray just as the world has seen the geopolitical fraying over the past years, which meant that the Europeans were getting faster to say, come on, let's just get this signed. The Russians were pushing at the end, saying, "You know, we want to end the arms embargo." They were, they were, they were basically they were they were throwing curveballs at the end of the negotiations, and and everybody was basically saying, "If you don't get this deal done, the sanctions are going to start eroding." So you've already kind of lost the high point of your influence, America. Better cut this deal fast, or it's even going to get worse. As you, as we all know. It's not just how much money or power someone's has. It's also the trajectory that feels so much. I mean, if you're a billionaire, but you've lost $100 million, people say he's on the way down, he can be depressed. Mm. Where someone that's you know making $50,000 suddenly gets a raise to go to 75, they feel great, right? And that's precisely what happened with Iran's position, America's position in the Iran deal. Now, uh, you, know, you, you can look at Iran historically. At times when oil prices collapse, uh, you see this foment up in the streets again. The bazaaris there are disenchanted. Uh, 
the regime cannot pay its loyalists as much, cannot be as profligate. They might have to cut subsidies. You saw it happen in 2009 with the protests uh, and the government crackdown there. You saw it happen with the student protests in 1999. Um, why wasn't there this, you know, what's happening in parallel to this is is global oil prices are crumbling. Uh, China is consuming on the margin less of it. Uh, the Saudis are pumping to the max. We have this shale oil boom here in the United States. I know you get asked about this enough. If we had just stepped away from the table and we're not so eager to have this crowning foreign policy achievement for the Obama-Kerry administration, could they just have been squeezed with, with plummeting oil prices? Is there just no way for them to have balanced their budget? Um, I, I think that if we had negotiated harder for another three months, so instead don't kill the deal, but just keep the interim sanctions in place, the interim deal in place, um, and then push harder when the Iranians know that oil prices are low and that they're going to get a better deal under Obama than either Hillary Clinton or uh, any Republican that comes in, I think we actually would have had some more leverage, even though Kerry was exhausted and even though um, the Europeans, the Chinese and the Russians were all kind of itching for a deal. So if I had been advising Obama at that point, I would have said, go back in and keep pushing. I think we could have uh, kept the arms embargo and we probably could have tightened that 24 day window a little bit for inspections. But let's be clear. There are lots of other things going on here that are beneficial for the Americans in terms of this deal. Uh, number one, you know, OPEC's pumping to the max. The Saudis are pumping to the max. OPEC's destroyed as an organization, and the Iranians are going to have another million barrels a day on the markets within 12 months' time. The Americans used to be a high-cost producer. We're now a medium-cost producer, and the price is going down because we're so damn efficient and technologically I understand that North Dakota, North Dakota is more productive now than the smallest member of OPEC, which is Ecuador. Which is kind of astonishing. <laughs> it blows the mind, about, right? Right. I mean, who goes to North Dakota? Apparently, they everyone they have restaurants. They have three percent unemployment there. <laughs> I know it's astonishing. Well, that tells you that not enough people are going to North Dakota. Um, but uh, you know, if I think about what that means for the fact that we're going to have oil prices lower because of the Iran deal, that's an unmitigated good for a diversified U.S. economy. It's like a tax break for you know, sort of uh, lower middle classes in the U.S. We like that, and you know, the Saudis hate the Iran deal. But most of their Gulf Arab allies, you know, like uh, certainly the the Qataris, the Omanis, uh, the Emiratis to a degree, they're all saying, we want to work with Saudi Arabia. We want to work with Iran. They're hedging. That's a better environment geopolitically for the Americans than Sunni versus Shia. And, you know, we have to kind of pick, right? We want to hedge. So geopolitically, this is a better deal for the Americans. It's not a great deal for Saudis. It's not a great deal for Israel. And if I'm advising those governments, I would say push against it. But I'm not advising those governments. So, you know, th there you go. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Uh, we are joined by Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group, also foreign affairs columnist at Time Magazine, global research prof at NYU. Uh, I am going to run out of breath if I go through your entire LinkedIn profile. Uh, so let's cut it short. And we'll, we'll, we'll skip the whole thing about you playing for the Colts during the strike season. Uh, but anyway, I want to get at this chasm between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, because there's this, this creeping perception now that the Iranians are making their grab to become kind of the, the, the regional counterbalance to the all-powerful Saudis, who after all have been tight with the United States forever, but there's certainly a, a Sunni-Shiite divide, and it was exacerbated 
by uh, last week's uh, death of about 780 pilgrims uh, doing the Hajj in Mecca, who, many of whom were Iranian. And, and Tehran has been really outspoken saying that this is not just neglect, this is this is criminal and that, that they should be brought before some sort of court. I mean, it's it's pretty poisonous between the regimes right now. They are. They, they, the Iranians have now said in the last 24 hours they're going to bring uh, this up to the International Criminal Court um, against the Saudis. And I mean, if you this, this deal, this Iran deal was much worse for the Saudis than it was for the Israelis. Why? Um, Why? Because every well, first of all, because the Saudis are a major oil producer and that's their economy, and in Iran is now a direct competitor um, that will be expanding very dramatically. Yeah, but their marginal the cost of production is like a couple dollars per barrel. The Saudis, nobody can compete with them. No, it's not a question of competing with them directly. It's a question of oil prices are going to come down a lot as Iran becomes a much bigger producer. So this is directly uh, undermining them in the region. I already mentioned to you that Saudi's ability to be a strong ruler of the Gulf Cooperation Council is eroded because a lot of, of those allies want to work with Iran, which they couldn't do when Iran was a pariah state. And then, of course, the more direct issue for the Saudis is that everything they're fighting from a security perspective in the region, the Iranians are on the other side, whether it's Iraq and the Iranians support the largely Shia uh, Baghdad regime, uh, whether it's Yemen um, and the fight with the Houthis, uh, whether it is uh, Bahrain and a Shia majority uh, Bahrain population, but of course a kingdom that's aligned within confederation with the Saudi kingdom. I mean, anywhere you look, Syria, anywhere you look, the Iranians are on the other side of the Saudis and they're fighting. They're fighting through proxies. That's going to grow. Um, and the Saudis are very concerned, uh, and, and they and they blame the Americans. The relationship between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. right now is one of saying, you know, even though publicly the Saudis had no choice but say, okay, we accept this deal because the deal's happening, and the Saudis don't have any allies supporting them on it, um, so they're pretty pragmatic about it. But at the end of the day, uh, the Saudis see themselves as really undermined by this change in U.S. policy. Now, did I did I see correctly, or was I? Um was I losing my mind that Netanyahu and the, the Saudi kingdom were, were singing kind of at the same level uh, when this deal came out? Well, how could they not be? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Iran uh, is a much bigger concern for Israel and the Saudis than they are to each other. Um, I mean, it used to be that the um, you'd go around the Middle East and I'd talk to leaders and they'd all say that the Israel-Palestine conflict needs to be resolved and that's the biggest problem in the region. It's not even in the top five right now. And so the Israelis from a geopolitical position are actually much stronger, much more secure today, despite the fact that the relationship between Netanyahu and Obama is assertively toxic than they have been really in decades. Now, what happens with the Israelis? Um, open that up for me. I'm shocked, as are a lot of APAC spectators. Uh, there was a great big profile in the New York Times about a week ago how APAC was diminished in this. You have what is looked at as the Obama regime is somewhat semi-lame duck, uh, diminished. The polling numbers aren't that high, but it put its entire political capital behind lining up loyalists uh, on Capitol Hill. There were no Republicans that were going to come out and support it. But you could turn around and say, you know what, I don't care about my link to the Obama administration anymore. I care about self-preservation in 2016 and past. And AIPAC is going to punish me for that. And I should be more worried about what Hillary Clinton or the presumptive frontrunner in the, in the Republican Party thinks about this package. How in the world did they cram this through? I mean, even a Chuck Schumer only belatedly came out against it. Well, I mean, you know, I, I saw um, that uh, one poll taken of the Jewish community by a large uh, organization, Jewish organization in Los Angeles, was a national poll, showed that uh, more Jews uh, in America supported the deal than opposed it, and, and about 18% weren't sure. 
Um, that's the, the the Jewish community in the U.S. was completely divided uh, on the Iran issue. Netanyahu is an enormously polarizing figure in Israel. He's an enormously polarizing figure for the Israel lobby in the United States. A lot of that dirty laundry was actually aired. Um, I mean, I've spoken to a number of Israeli officials who thought uh, off the record that Netanyahu made a huge mistake by coming to the United States, that he was doing this for his own reelection purposes, but he was actually actively damaging the relations between the U.S. and Israel. I fielded a, a fielded a number of calls mm. from uh, U.S. congressmen, as, uh, members of the House and senators asking me my view on, on, on the Iran deal as they were thinking through how they wanted to vote. They took it very seriously. And while Netanyahu gave an impassioned speech and the people that showed up and most people did show up, you know, sort of applauded him and all the rest. At the end of the day, um, you know, this was not a, viewed by most members of Congress as make or break. And the Republicans basically, they, when they saw that the votes were aligned, that they could have like an op opposing vote that was going to be free, um, they took it. But I mean, if those votes had actually counted, um, and there was a real possibility that the Americans might have actually uh, had the deal taken out from under their feet because of Congress, and therefore, you know, they, they'd be they'd take responsibility for it. I think you would have had very few people actually voting against. I, it. I am still, though, shocked at to what extent it was looked at as a foregone conclusion well before they had the ultimate votes to do it. I mean, again, just the signaling and the Chuck Schumer coming out belatedly. I mean, uh, APAC would whip him into shape early on and saying, not only do we want you opposing it, we want you vociferously opposing it and cracking into shape a bunch of other members that are on the fence, not just to Bob Menendez, who's a fallen angel at the White House. I mean, actually, you know, APAC was, was looked at as being so strong before this that it would never have even made it this far if something fundamental didn't change uh, either here politically uh, or demographically or abroad in terms of Israel's clout. Yeah, again, I mean, Netanyahu is, is a difficult leader for the Israelis um, in the United States um, among congressmen um, and certainly uh, with uh, with the American electorate. And I mean, anyone that was talking to congressional leaders as the Saran deal was coming through, I mean, all recognized that while there was a lot of rhetorical points to be scored, uh, no, nobody was – there's a recognition that once the deal is done – Killing the deal is a disaster for the United States. Everyone understood that. There was never an argument that could be made that actually said, let's go back. It's kind of like a Tea Party argument. Hmm. You know, it was like it was like Cruz basically saying, okay, we're gonna bring down the government because we want Obamacare to go. There was no support to get rid of Obamacare, but they still wanted to they wanted to raise the the, the flag on this. And you know, Boehner, of course, when he uh, resigned, uh, it was uh, off, you know, uh, was was criticizing this this approach so greatly. And there was certainly the same sort of rhetoric you saw from some leaders in early days on the Iran deal, but there was no one actually saying credibly that they could really vote this down. You couldn't because once it's done, you can say you don't want to sign the deal, but once you've actually done the deal, if you get rid of it, then the sanctions are gone, but America keeps it. So everyone's doing business with the Iranians. The Iranians are, have an unfettered nuclear program, and the Americans are the only ones that are staying out. That's, that's absolutely not what Congress wants to be responsible for. Hmm. Uh, Ian Bremmer, when clients ask you to look around the planet right now, there are so many weak points, uh, whether you talk about uh, Caracas in South America, whether you talk about Russia's fiscal situation, uh, whether you talk about China slowing down after double-digit growth for so long. We had uh, Jim Chanos, the hedge fund uh, China skeptic, on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what, what most keeps you up at night in terms of uh, systemic risk emanating from one place or the potential for contagion? I guess I would say... Um 
three things that, that I would be most worried about. One is that the transatlantic relationship is becoming so much weaker that, you know, the special relationship with Britain doesn't exist anymore. The Brits are barely players internationally. The Europeans have so many structural problems that are making, that's making Europe as an actor just not exist. Um, and I worry about, you know, the, 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 the blowback from the refugee crisis in Europe itself. Um, these, it is the transatlantic relationship that was really the linchpin, the bedrock of what allowed the U.S. to create the post-war order. It is weaker now than at any point since that creation. So that would be one thing. The second thing would, would be, I mean, I'm not a China skeptic. I don't think China is about to implode. Chanos has been saying that for a long time now. I, mean, I suppose when he's right, eventually uh, he'll say that he knew it was coming. Not very useful. Um, but when I think about, you know, so the next 10 years as China is going to become the world's largest economy and supplant the U.S. from that title, the level of uncertainty and volatility around China's eventual path will be vastly greater than that of any other major economy. It's going to be very hard to manage that hard for corporations, hard for governments. And so I worry about that a great deal, the level of uncertainty that comes from a world-leading economy, China. And then the third thing would be just the growing challenge of, of cyber terror and bioterror from non-state actors or from small state actors, rogue state actors, as that technology becomes increasingly available and accessible. I mean, you know, when the North Koreans can effectively bring down Sony Pictures um, we're in a very different kind of world. And I think about organizations like Anonymous. I think about the capabilities of terrorist organizations like ISIS, Boko Haram. Once once they become more technologically empowered, I do think that that's going to create uh, much more, um, you know, sort of a fat tail risks right. uh, in the geopolitical environment. And I think those are largely underappreciated by the markets today. No one really talks about it anymore, but the, the, the previous decade was looked at as the, the finally the ultimate emergence of the emerging and frontier economies. Not only did you have the rise of the BRICS, but you had things like the civets, what was it, Colombia, Indonesia, yeah. Vietnam, Egypt, I mean, uh, Turkey. Um, you had uh, frontier economies in sub-Saharan Africa that were really uh, starting to develop domestic economies unto themselves. But now you look back at this and you've seen how emerging markets have been walloped. And then you have legitimacy again to the argument that they're only all as good as China and the commodity cycle. Um, is there any evidence to you that a bunch of players, especially, you know, you started your firm in 1998 and that was at a time of emerging yeah. market contagion. And there were precious few economies, i.e. Korea, that came out and actually parlayed the boom to uh, – to, to get some sort of self-determination and relevance outside of, of commodities and the super cycle. Do you, is there any indication to you that really um, some are, are on their own right now and are able to stand on their own two feet? Well, I mean, it was it was obviously a, a, a bubble of false expectations. I mean, when you start, when you call a group of countries civets, I mean, you name them after monkeys that crap out coffee beans. I think you know that you've gone a little too far in the cycle. Um, I, I I think that um, you know the, the 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 expectation that these emerging markets were all going to succeed when they had vastly different capabilities in terms of resilience, in terms of governance, in terms of vulnerabilities to market shocks. I mean, no one no one should have bought that story. It's the same it's like the Africa story. Everyone's like, Africa's coming. Some of Africa will come. A lot of Africa will fail and fail desperately hmm. for the same reasons that some of the emerging markets have failed desperately. But the but risk premium were so small. I mean, you as a subs one of the one of the great benefits of zero interest rate policy and QE1, QE2 was that sub-Saharan economies, Ghana, suddenly had the chance to go out and borrow and build down infrastructure. It was a once in a away. Right, yeah. it's a once in a generation opportunity. I mean, is that all is that all as fleeting as it was? 
in one of these early 90s, late 90s booms? It's definitely going to be very fleeting. It's going to hurt a lot. And America is going to benefit from a lot of that because of the stability and the resilience of the U.S. economy. But I, it's not that I think there aren't good stories out there. I think India is a fantastic story. It's, it's overdue, but it's really coming. I believe in Modi. I believe in the, the BJP um, and uh, in, in the states, uh, the provinces that actually have BJP governors, particularly along the Western Industrial Corridor. Um, I'm pretty bullish about Southeast Asia, generally speaking. Uh, I think Indonesia will continue to do well. Uh, I, I think with the TPP, you've got a country like Vietnam that's poised to actually take off. That's really good. You mentioned Iran earlier. That was mentioned in Goldman Sachs' group of next 11 countries. Obviously, this was before the financial crisis that they came out and put, you know, if these, if these countries, if these frontier and emerging economies play their cards right, they have demography on their side, they have um, uh, consumer class, they have uh, geostrategic positioning, that they could be the next big players in emerging markets. And you only need look at a country that was so laughable as Colombia 10, 20 years ago and see how they have suddenly almost overnight become a, a pillar of stability and strength to see that it's actually very possible uh, among uh, uh, really more, you know, unstable countries. Though Colombia also very vulnerable because of the the end of the commodity super cycle, right? And I right. mean, they're having a hard time attracting capital uh, and they're having a hard time uh, with low oil prices right now. So, I mean, the, you know, Colombia is a country that I generally feel pretty good about, and especially with the new agreement with the FARC that's with actually going to happen. Right. But, but you know, it's this is a tough environment to be an emerging market. You're going to have to be really well governed and you have to be pretty resilient to make it. I think Brazil will eventually make it, but the next two years are going to be horrible. And again, I think India just has been so far behind and there's so little in terms of commodities intensivity there. They've got a lot of talent. There's just a lot they can unlock. And I think they really will. And India is a big country. I don't think China's falling apart. I think it's slowing down, but that's fine. I think it's manageable. And I think the Chinese government certainly feels like they can manage it, um, which is one of the reasons that they're not suddenly panicking in terms of their anti-corruption campaign uh, or their SOE reform packages or even international things like the uh, hosting of uh, Japanese and South Korean leaders mm. to try to improve economic relations there. Um, so I, I don't think this is an unmitigated disaster. I just think the macro environment is going to get much more challenging for EMs. And we have to recognize that a number of them are going to fall off the radar as a consequence of that. Uh, Professor Bremer, Dr. Bremer, columnist Bremer, uh, tell us about oil prices, what they mean in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it used to be great uh, when oil prices would tumble, even the velocity of the tumble. Never mind, you're talking about $40, $45 oil. Now, uh, there are days when oil prices tumble and you see a, a ripple effect. Wall Street plummets after various emerging markets plummet. Uh, you're worried that this could destabilize regimes that are already precarious on uh, uh, on their financial footing, i.e. Russia, i.e. Venezuela. What is the potential for some sort of systemic or even a political shock a revolution, i.e., I don't know, a Yeltsin teetering situation uh, with oil prices falling even further? Uh, it's it's pretty low in most of these countries. Venezuela would be the one where they were getting much closer to a default, but then the Chinese uh, opened up some credit for them, and suddenly they have you know a new lease on life for at least another year. You can see the Chinese keeping doing that over time. Comparatively small economy. Easy but a Venezuela a Venezuela couldn't then trip up a Brazil. I'm sure clients ask you about this. I mean, how yeah, would yeah. the decoupling happen? How would no? The... I'm just I'm just saying I don't think it's likely. Uh, I mean, you asked me how likely it was. I mean, Russia. I think uh, there's no question is again a much more diversified economy than just. 
just oil and gas. They certainly are going to be increasing taxes uh, as a consequence of the, the significant dip in energy prices, mm. which aren't coming back anytime soon. But Russia has the political stability to pull that off, especially given their ability to antagonize successfully the Americans. So I don't think Russia is going anywhere anytime soon. There's no there's no meaningful opposition within Russia. There's no one that's going to have a Yeltsin moment. as you. But just a see. default, a default. They have sufficient foreign reserves. A lot of these economies do to stave off a default. Yeah, they, they do. Uh, I think the, the country that I worry the most about with a much lower energy price environment that matters is Saudi Arabia. And they're a country with a lot of cash. But I mean, you know, they also have a lot of problems. And uh, again, with the Iran tilt in the region, with the, with the fact that the Saudis are going to have to spend a lot more on security with just how much of a tinderbox the Middle East is, with, the, with more terrorists operating inside Saudi Arabia, not just right across their borders in Iraq and in Yemen, uh, I think the Saudis are becoming more vulnerable. And, and I do worry, not like in the next six months, but over the next few years, this is a regime that, 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 that could start to look very unstable. Uh, and that does, you know, it's, it's built on the sanctity of a single family. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't have a lot of legitimacy with a lot of the 30 million people. And then when you look at the entire map of the Middle East and you want to go back to Lawrence of Arabia times and whatnot, so much of it is an artificial construct. I mean, when you look at Syria today, these maps were drawn by who? I mean, you know, Iraq. Iraq was kept together under under the thumb of a strongman, you know, a person who I believe in the, in the late 80s bombed the Kurds in Halabja. Was, you have to have an SOB like that to keep these artificial constructs together. And when you remove someone like that, that's the, the terrible position the world has kind of put itself in post-colonial is that you see horrific situations like the 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 you know ISIS raping young people, burning people alive, decapitating people. That's just uh, you know it's a terrible either or situation we put ourselves in. We're very fortunate that during our own periods of artificial colonialism in the United States, that you didn't have the internet. It was much easier to suppress you know sort of large nations, even commit genocide against them. I mean, in in the Middle East, it's much harder to do that. Um, and uh, today, and as a consequence, it's much more unstable. Well, Ian, we have a few minutes left. I'd like to discuss the political landscape here. You. Uh, wrote something was widely distributed on LinkedIn. Who is Donald Trump? What does he represent? Who is he really? Um, and, and talk to me about that in the backdrop of the, the general cacophony that is the GOP field right now. I don't even remember who's running or who's not running. Is Newt in there? Is Palenti in there? I mean, I look at the entire field, the A class and B class, and totally forget that this guy declared his candidacy. What does he represent? And you also wrote this morning that you, you have it on good authority that Mayor Bloomberg, his honor, is looking seriously at an independent run. Yep. No, those things are Tell all us all. Tell us oh, all. Well, uh, well, I mean, I, I think that uh, the Trump phenomenon is less interesting uh, than the Trump uh, Carson Fiorina phenomenon, which is over 50 percent uh, of GOP supporters in most polls um, are behind uh, individuals that are you know, complete outsiders to the GOP establishment. And I think that's reflecting um, in both a changing media landscape where people can build their own brands and talk directly and then create news that the media has to actually follow on as opposed to the other way around, uh, which we shouldn't understate the importance of that. Uh, and, and also just the fact that Congress is seen as ineffectual um, and that you know v v record numbers of Americans do not affiliate themselves with the Republican or the Democratic parties uh, today. Um, they feel much more disenfranchised, so they want people that speak truth and, and are more uh, seen to be more authentic. And Trump, as much uh, of a blowhard uh, and, a, and a buffoon as he is, 
um, is authentic um, and uh, is, is an authentic buffoon. He says whatever he feels like, and people prefer that um, to a lot of the focus group to death um, conversations that are being had uh, in other places. I, I, I do. I think that the, the likelihood of Trump getting the nomination is literally zero because um, he's a reality show guy. And, and if you're going to give bread and circuses to the people, you have to keep doing that. And he's getting boring. Um, and you can't keep your ratings if you get boring. Right? Who's so going to get himself. the nod then? I don't know. Um, I mean, I suspect it'll ultimately be somebody that is more centrist um, to the establishment. And I suspect that because it's it's still a long cycle and most money hasn't been spent yet. Most endorsements haven't been made and those things still have power. But the point is that the the impact and the likelihood that a wild card gets the nomination is greater today than it was four years ago. And assuming these trends continue, it's going to be greater again in another four years. I fully expect that will happen. So I do think that um, the, the, the growth of non-establishment parties is not just something we're seeing in Greece and Spain and Britain. It's something that we will eventually even see here in the United States washing across our shores, even though our economy is doing much better. And I think it's precisely because of that, to go full circle, that someone like his honor, the mayor Bloomberg, you know, a, a diminutive um, Jewish bachelor billionaire from New York is actually thinking, wow, things are changing enough that I might actually have a shot in this race where two years ago, four years ago, he correctly assessed that he could never possibly become president of the United States. And what about Joe Biden? Uh, I think Joe Biden really doesn't want to run against Hillary. So I think he's been waiting this out and seeing if Hillary is going to implode. And the question is, will that if it happens, will it happen fast enough for Biden to actually get in the race uh, and be credible um, in Iowa, New Hampshire. We have some hard filing deadlines coming up. I think that's exactly the game that's playing. I think he has moved more towards wanting to run and tossing his hat in over the past few weeks, but he's not there yet. We have to watch. This has much more to do with the Hillary campaign than it has to do with Biden's head. Is everything too murky and are there too many moving parts for you to, 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 to say with any degree of certainty who will be our next president? I mean, of course. it's like you're not going to run a Monte Carlo simulation. I mean, people paying you to, to put in qualitative inputs and quantitative inputs and various if-then scenarios. We don't know which way the economy will turn, when the Fed will hike, um, interest rates, uh, if, if you know uh, there's a bombshell thing with the emails and the State Department. Uh, you still can't do it, no? But, but not only can't I do it, but given the people that you'd likely put there, so it'd be Biden, it'd be Hillary, uh, it would be, um, you know, a uh, Rubio or Bush or maybe Kasich, someone like that. I mean, if it's one of those five people. Wait, is Kasich even running? Oh, yeah, he is running. Sorry, go ahead. And, and, he's, and he's come up recently, actually. I mean, he's not come up fair, a fair bit. So that's why I wouldn't have put him in a week ago. Um, you know, the, if it's one of those five or six type people. I think the impact on the United States is, and, and on markets is relatively small, which is why, you know, there aren't many people asking me that question. But even if they do, uh, my, my response would be, that's kind of the wrong question to ask. The American system, you know, think about just how bunged up Congress is, how little the U.S. president can do in terms of substantive policy, unless they're really on one extreme of the party or the other, which is very unlikely. The real game in the U.S. in terms of policy movement right now is at the state level and at the municipal level. That's very interesting, and not many people are focusing on it. Ian Bremmer, finally, tell us what you're working on for Time Magazine or one of these other 8,000 publications that you write for in between grading papers of NYU students. Uh, right now, I am working on Russia, and I'm working on just how dramatic uh, the uh, Putin ability to change the strategic landscape in the Middle East and beyond is. So it's uh, that's clearly the meeting of the week is Putin-Obama coming up very shortly, and I'm going to be writing about that. And will you give us a sneak preview right now? 
uh, it's transformative. It's transformative. And, and, uh, and Obama has a very difficult choice to make as to how much publicly he's willing to actually back off of Assad must go. That has been both the linchpin of his America's Syria policy for the last four years and yet completely unrealistic from day one. Ian Bremmer, I thank you so much for joining us. President of Eurasia Group, which you founded with all of $25,000 in 1998. I hope you got a, uh, an above-market return on that um, in the 17 years since. I have no intention to sell it, so I wouldn't really know, but I'm enjoying myself a great deal. Thank you so much. It's been a treat to have you on. My pleasure. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We are on NPR One, WRIR, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. On Twitter and Facebook, you can find us at Full D Radio. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. 